The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Sendo. For more information, visit villagesendo.org. Good evening, everyone on Zoom. I see some of you recognize you. Uh, thank you for your time and thank you for always accommodating the Sotoshu's request for a visit. <laughs> it's not always works, and I believe you're quite busy with the preparation for the retreat coming up soon. All right. So, you all, you all ready? Yes. Yes. I remember being here last year, about a year ago. Uh, right after came back to in-person practice. So it's wonderful to see after a year of uh, lapse of time and New York itself, I could feel has changed even since then. And uh, I'm, I'm mainly active in East Los Angeles, uh, often commuting either by bike or <laughs> car to Los Angeles to twice a week to help uh, Soto Zen Buddhism North America office as a secretary. And other than that, I'm mostly serving the small community, a Japanese American community. Uh, my name is Gyoke Yokoyama. I'm one of the 57, I could be wrong, some Kokusai Fukyoshi international missionaries appointed to serve North America. Um, it's been eight years since I was assigned to work in North America as an appointed missionaries. First place I was uh, appointed to serve was a community called Long Beach Buddhist Church. Um, Long Beach Buddhist Church is a non-denominational Buddhist community and their ancestors, parents and grandparents came from a place called Wakayama Fishers, uh, very feisty. And they had very, uh, very straightforward, honest about Sotoshu too. They didn't hold back. Then <laughs> 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 they even said to me, I'm not sure if it's a fine to say this, but they said, oh, we're not really here to babysit any Sotoshu priest. We have to send us a real one. <laughs> and somehow they, they accommodated me. <laughs> so they put up with me for a while. And my mission there was to make sure the community gets handed over from first and second generation to third and fourth generation for technically Americans. Um, language has shifted, culture has shifted. Uh, they wanted to make sure it's somebody Japanese who understand their value, but someone who understand the new generation's value uh, as well. And it wasn't easy. Uh, actually, that initial mission, I can't say I completed, but I, I, I brought some new board members from the new generation and I assigned two of my American students to serve and they gracefully accepted non-Japanese American teacher. So it's a new phase for them and they are, I think they're learning because they were just so tired of Japanese priests who don't speak English much. <laughs> so now they have Americans, the American teacher who not necessarily write Japanese, but then at least it's a good opportunity for them to test out, you know, so it's an experiment still. And because they are my students still, I'm indirectly related, relevant working for them. Now the Sozen temple I'm working for, it was in even much more in a dire situation. 
uh, sorry, it's, it's a little bit before I, I share uh, Kazan's story, but I believe it's somewhat relevant. Uh, it's 50 years old. We had the 50th anniversary, and this is my bit of a disclosure. So Reverend Shuyu Kurai was the founder who worked with the, his, uh, I guess, teacher um, who's a no, uh, nominal uh, or honorary founder of Sojiji Temple, one of the uh, abbots of Sojiji Head Monastery. He had a tremendous support from Sojiji, but the history of this temple was a little bit turbulent. He was supporting the 50th anniversary of Zen Shuji. We had a 100th anniversary of Zen Shuji and Sotoshu just this year. And around that time, they were building a new building and a lot of financial activity going on. And from frog, what I heard, just a fragment of the story, he would just somehow ended up being accused of some kind of embezzlement. And he was a very popular teacher at the time. And he was kind of about pushed out of the community. And along with him left more than half of the membership of Zen Shuji a big supporter of the temple. And he settled in a house and then moved on to a community hall. Eventually found this Catholic church that had, bank had bankruptcy just a few years before. <laughs> and then found this building. And that's where the church, a temple was built. Again, uh, interesting thing is this community was consisted of members who came after World War II and I myself is a first generation immigrant, and we don't really particularly care if our children take over the tradition or not. So that's a trait of a new generation Japanese immigrants. So this temple, children are not necessarily uh, interested, and there's much less kind of momentum. Uh, one of the members, and then Reverend Tonkrai, who was a great contributor to uh, larger Soto Zen community through his excellent Taiko school. He founded a Taiko center of Chippo Sanjels, and he was constantly out uh, reaching out to the Sanghas. And I hear a lot of great things from many Zen centers. However, the membership of the community did not understand what he was doing, or maybe he wasn't really conveying what he was intention was. So he's remembered as a teacher whose passion all went to taiko performance, not so much of a dharma activity. That was a bit of a superficial understanding that left the membership uh, with a little perplexed. It's nothing unusual about the teachers who came serve Japanese American temples. Uh, a bit of a misunderstanding, a bit of a turbulence. The book that I wanted to share today, Tokokuki, Records of Tokoku Valley, was a Keizan's temple when he started uh, his own temple in the Tokoku Valley, how it was donated by a couple who owned the land, and how he contributed to Soto Zen School's formation. We all know how Dogen Zenji wrote uh, Soto Zen from China after the transmission from Rujin, Yojo Zenji. We rarely talk about what happened after Dogen 
days, Dogen passed away. And there was a quite a few bit of a turbulent period of time in Soto school. And Kezan Zenji's and his students reestablished something that almost felt like crumbling. And Kezan's contribution was while Dogen brought the teaching, the core teaching from China to Japan, Kezan and his students really established this tradition. And from that foundation, Soto Zen school continued to this day. And working for Sotoshu myself as one of the bureaucrats, probably one of the most loosely connected one. <laughs> People used to consider me a bit of a risk factor. I'm the youngest in the family, so I can pretend to be quite faithful, but there's a bit of rebellious nature. <laughs> Maybe that's why I love Barney Glassman, all these teachers. <laughs> um, still, uh, a lot of glamorization happened in 1800s, like things got to be sugar-coated. Uh, it's not just Soto Zen. I think this whole thing in Japan in 1800s became like, you know, how founders became a lot of divine figures. We all do that. <laughs> and, but Tokokuki is a compilation of records, diaries, uh, memories of Keizan's mother and father, uh, mother and grandmother, who were uh, quite devoted to the faith culture of Kuan Yin, local faith culture. Um, so it's, it just reveals what was happening and how much of what we do as Sotos in school was formed around that time. Interesting resemblances here. Uh, this is actually something that I took away from my colleague Taiga's stigma representation. <laughs> he was here in New York. Um, since Prominent teachers like uh, Maizumi Roshi or Suzuki Roshi came. Thank you so much. So since Hakuyu Maizumi Roshi came in 1956, it's been 67 years. Uh, Shinju Suzuki Roshi came in 1959, so it's been 64 years, right? And Katagiri Roshi was invited to support them, and that's 60 years ago. So you can see now it's been six decades. And this, this kind of overlap with the time of case Dogen came back from China and then Keizan and students uh, had to really make effort to establish the school. And the resemblance of this time, medieval Soto Zen in a formative years is like, it's another thing, like it was interesting was they were creating their own membership system. They were paying not much attention to the authority back then from Hie. And the members who came to the Sangha, they came from, from all walks of life. Uh, some of them were officials, some were uh, monks, someone who looked like a monk, but had children, had families. And so it's a lay-ish monk. <laughs> it's interesting to you. See, we always think of this, it's, it's just the products of hereditary system in relatively modern Sotos in history. And according to Keizan's advice, Dogen, uh, Dogen's advice, Keizan left a message, what to do when new students show up. 
what kind of criteria they should set up. And they should at least let them spend uh, one winter or one summer and then see how they do as an apprentice. Um, if they come with no basic occupations or just they keep chopping around and then probably it's better to just not encourage them to be a monk. <laughs> so those very specific advice was there. And there were also a certain type of sutras they were encouraging to cover prior to the novice ordination. This is interesting because I think we're seeing this in SCBA. We don't talk about it so much in Sotoshi anymore, but uh, there was a definite questioning about what it means to be a Soto Zen priest or Soto Zen member at the time. Um, let's see. Actually, the photo, oh, sorry, the phone, if you don't mind, I think I left it there. I, if you could, I'm sorry, I actually left some data in there. I apologize. <laughs> sorry. Thank you so much. This was the only computer that I carried with me and is typing uh, some of the things. By the way, the Zooms, the word from the Zoom, I admire how you coordinate all this. Basically, it's, I do this alone. So I set up the altar and instance and come to the computer, turn on the Zoom, <laughs> and I did an audio check. And, uh, that's uh, my rich routine usually. Uh, I apologize. Let's see. Here you go. Yes. So Tokukuki is an interesting thing. Unlike Shobo Genzo, written by uh, Dogen Zenjo, Denkorok, uh, Transmission of Light, it reveals the real situations back then. Um, now, the, one of the big contributions Keizan Zenji did was establishing what we call Go, Go, Ho, five mountain peaks of five elders, right? The Nyojo Zenji, Dogen Zenji, Ejo Zenji, and Kikai Zenji, and Keizan. Now, it's interesting how Soto Zen was little known compared to Rinzai school. Rinzai had a huge backup from China and his teachers and his government. And Rinzai brand was a lot bigger. And when Dogen came, he intentionally didn't use the word uh, Soto, although Soto was used as a term and he didn't use this I like to use the word brand. He didn't do the branding. <laughs> <laughs> he just said he brought the uh, correctly transmitted teaching of Buddha Dharma. So that was also the reason why it wasn't uh, like permeating. Was, um, so that was just an interesting situation. Now we have, what do you think? Which is more known, Rinzai, Soto? It's all mixed. Is it? Yes. <laughs> and when I just gonna follow this order, when Keizan Zenji started his own first temple, there was a donation from this couple, as I said. And here's what this couple said. We are offering this mountain. All that we are hoping for is that you will temporarily use this place for you to stay and use. We're fine if you use the land or end up ruining it. <laughs> We're fine if you um, uphold your precept or not. 
you will not be concerned if you give it to someone of lower class. Once it's your land, we have no intention of reclaiming this place again. We have aroused the mind of Dana, thus we don't have any wishes of our own. So this word really moved Keizan and he started this temple in the Tokoku Valley. Uh, yes, there's also uh, questions and answers he exchanged with the members at the time. There's one example, my rough translation. If one is awakened by the teacher, a blossom of uh, peach, so that's one particular expression, that is an awakening attributed to external factors, others. Would that be a mind of self-awakening? And then Kazan said, it is possible for one to awaken without a teacher. In some cases, yes. One who attained awakening without a teacher has no doubt on people who have attained awakening that is attributed to others. However, those who are awakened by others doubt those who awakened without teachers. So there was such a conversation there. <laughs> and there's also an example of teaching. And this is about Zazen. Zazen knows no wise or full, nor distinction of either, nor ordinary or nor sacred, nor distinction of others. Wholeheartedly and thoroughly engaged in samadhi and the function and march into the samadhi of illumination. Zazen is free of the functions of consciousness, nor formation of our thoughts. Let these functions manifest without thinking. Truth manifests with its individually, with its individual absolute nature. So, you know, we don't really dive into his teachings, but such was how he gave instruction to his students. Uh, Kezan had five wise students, and Gasan Zenji, whose anniversary we celebrated a few years ago, it's a few years ago, a while ago, yes, <laughs> Gasan Zenji, and he had 25 wise students, and these students uh, spread Soto Zen all across the country. There's also a bit of a mention of social engagement back then. Extend your hands to support people from all walks of life if they are asking for help. Do not pay heed, pay too much attention to what would follow as consequence. So there's some mention of it. Kezan Zenji was transmitted uh, the Dharma from um, his teacher. that yes uh, Gikai Zenji and Gikai Zenji is known as, as having his background in Rinzai school and they had to do something about this whole uh, cross uh, hybrid culture a hybrid lineage of uh, Rinzai and Soto and according to these records they paid due respect to Rinzai school However, they did some sorting out to clarify as a Soto Zen school. And there's a lot of work done to establish that Soto lineage. And I am curious 
when I look at today's North American Soto Zen, where we have both Rinzai and Soto influence coming together. And this is something organizational. Uh, we are creating this new organizational platform it's called Soto Zen North America. That's on top of what we have as ACB, a local name for Soto Shu, and SCBA, which is created in 19, I believe, 95. Uh, and which has been around for some time as an uh, autonomous, uh, independent community group or network of Soto Zen. It, I think it's from the historical perspective, it's, it's interesting how people are trying to clarify uh, the Soto Zen tradition. And there's a one movement to reach out and make the Soto Zen grounded. And on the other hand, this is United States, <laughs> such diverse lineages. Uh, this is already blossoming all around the continent. So when I work as an official, just be involved in this kind of process. One perspective is that, yes, as an official, we follow the protocols, we follow the organizational movement. And this is also part of why I'm here saying, yes, there's a new platform. And we'd be probably be reaching out to these teachers who are outside of the system of Sotoshu, which is hopelessly rigid, as because it's all determined by the Japanese rules. So we've been all aware of this. And the new attempt is to create something similar, grounded, yet uh, adaptable to some extent. While we're witnessing as organization like SCBA or local community groups that are more organically developing so there's a part of me that feels responsible to honor the tradition, the organizational work. And there's a part of me that is completely irresponsible. So I, don't, I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> and actually, <laughs> so I don't really care because, and there's the thing that says, well, you know, culture has its own will and it will determine, well, only the history will tell. <laughs> so there's a part of me like that. <laughs> So I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that right here. <laughs> um, Keizan Zenji's, uh, again, uh, skillfulness was, he was really, uh, I guess, uh, he had that openness. He himself said when he was young, he was relatively short-tempered, <laughs> and he caused a lot of troubles. And I think he almost gave up his training at one point, but he said it was actually his mother and grandmother's dedication to Avalokiteshvara. It's a family's involvement by a big deal. This is different from what I hear about Dogen, who lost his parents in early time. And this is something that resonates with me and others who have our own community temple. At least I serve the community temple. In my case, uh, my temple is more deeply involved in esoteric Buddhist tradition. Also, Amitabha Buddha's tradition was there. So maybe I explained this before during my last visit. We honor Shakyamuni Buddha, Dogen Zenji, and Keizan Zenji. But we also have what we follow locally. That's the color of the community. And then we usually have 
it's advalok. Sometimes it's savalok teshvala. Sometimes I haven't seen the case where Amitabha Buddha was the main image of the temple, but whatever the Buddha was there initially, uh, it's, it's there. Now this is now this is a little bit of information sharing, and I share this at other temples, and this is just my take of this. So if you can you can double check if I'm accurate or not accurate. <laughs> this is what I always tell my students: you want to double check. You can only half trust me here. But when I before I came here, I had a service called Obon. Obon is an event. It's kind of like the Day of the Dead for Mexican people. We invite all the spirits of those who are with us here today, who are with us before physically. And also there's a bit of a nuance of those who will be here after us. And I love this service. And we invite hungry ghosts, demons. I love to tell this to my all my Christian friends. <laughs> <laughs> We invite indiscriminately. <laughs> and in my temple, I started encouraging people to bring their pets' names, cats' names, dog names, which isn't really conventional in Japan. And I found a way to justify this to very conservative Japanese people. It's actually how Mongolian people do this. They have a proper funeral service for dogs, uh, animals. And when I found out about it, I like, yes. <laughs> So anyway, we have all sentient beings. Uh, somebody actually tried to bring the names of the uh, insects because she was such a good lover. Uh, she took, she was fond of the insect. And that was, you know, I, I was a bit surprised, but also made sense. Anyway, uh, when we do the service, we have the altar right here. And when what's the name for this uh when they pick the location and design the, the created blueprint of the temple i used to be they made sure that altar is facing the north, <laughs> the north. <laughs> and the other side is south and then when we face the north that's when we use zagu and we do three bows and prostrations um we call this hokumen so dedication of the service to buddhas and ancestors and i got confused sometimes so funeral service for monks uh we do this hokumen yes no facing the north and fellow practitioners and when we have a memorial service for lay people usually have a dedicated space somewhere else and then they're also facing north not necessarily facing different directions but that's sometimes the other altar the Obon service for all sentient beings, we literally switch the direction and we face the south. And we create another altar outside for all sentient beings. And so when we have a group, we turn around and we face the south. In Japanese American temple, the way they designed the building wouldn't allow us to do it. So we set up the whole altar here, just assume it's the south facing the north. And I say it's north, but because of the rules, ordinance, and maybe zoning, <laughs> not all temples can be facing the north side or south side, I guess, sir. So the ultra will be on the uh, side of the north. But um, I have this um, digested as in my own way. What does it mean to face the north, the Buddhas and ancestors? 
what does it mean to face the self to sentient beings and and then sotoshu carries this mentality to some extent sometimes we have a lot of funeral service and there are some monks who come here bow to the spirit <laughs> not so much attention to the audience side and some audiences these monks are not really even if they're not acknowledging us like how rude they're <laughs> and the way they talk about it is now we're here for the buddhas at this occasion and there when there are four sentient beings we face the south and when i see the north american culture of democracy and everybody has to be sort of in a place and in the Asian value of this hierarchy, I mean, it makes sense. I know it doesn't really work, uh, but I also sense a lot of people are often facing the South, sentient beings, vulnerable, socially vulnerable, minority. And, but there's also the element of us facing the North, Buddhas and ancestors. Like I said, I grew up as the youngest in the family. So like, I used to, this was the hardest part for me. I love working for kids, love working for like, uh, my brother had this ability. So I, I tend to direct my attention to this people who are bitten disadvantaged. And when we talk about, we have to repay our, you know, our gratitude uh, to the blessings of the ancestors. And I used to think like, well, I don't really know these people. So am I supposed to do this? <laughs> <laughs> but when, when you grow, uh, when you start to have the more like experience with life and age and you start to realize our children, our grandchildren, you know, they're thriving, totally oblivious of what we've done. <laughs> and then that's our wish. We want them to just go out there, be successful. They don't have to think of us, totally oblivious. And in a sense, that's how we are in relation to our Buddhas and ancestors. So finally, then I started to understand, hmm, maybe it's a good thing. <laughs> um, I explained this to this, my students once, it's the wind of the north and wind of the south. This is just my, totally my original expression. Again, you don't have to buy it. <laughs> but when the winds of the south come, it's beautiful. It carries moisture, it brings so much greenery, vibrant community, active socially friendly you know yes but then soto zen school always has this wind from the north cold sometimes very harsh sometimes and and i i get it it makes our trees strong and so when i was before i went to the head monastery and i was i went to a jesuit school I was surrounded by Jesuit priests and theology department students, and I was one of the few Buddhist people, students with Buddhist background, which about which I didn't know much anyway <laughs> at the time. But they kept asking me questions, and they said, "Oh, you're so good! Like, you know, you have a Buddhist background. You know, you're going to." And when I made a decision to go to the monastery, they said, "Oh, that's wonderful. When you know about Christianity. You do something special." <laughs> I think you meant to do something special. And I felt really good. Oh, okay, that's good. <laughs> then I went to the head monastery. And then one of the first thing I was told was, okay, you can keep your mouth shut because you don't really matter here. <laughs> it's, like, <gasps> it's completely against the modern educational thing. And it gave me a, it was a blow to me. 
And when it goes to a certain extent, it takes away the self-esteem, which actually did to me for some years. But it was also a strong wind of the north. Um, you get to hear this. Uh, and from just my experience, whether it's a wind from the south, wind from the north, uh, it gives us, it kind of shakes us. But then when you do Zazen, you let this manifest, that this voice we realize is actually in us right from the beginning. And when that voice comes from within the north or south, then it starts to sort of form this thing. Uh, when we do a Dharma transmission, there's a whole circle thing, teacher, student. And there's a continuity of us being a student, continuity of us being a teacher, just one whole circle. It's never a linear thing. And again, within that, we feel that wind. We're always facing the north, we're always facing the south at the same time, whatever level we are. This is a little bit off the book that I wanted to share about, but this is also something that why reading this book and realizing what a turbulent period of time they went through and how they strengthened, stabilized this foundation of Soto Zen school. Uh, it made me think of these things. So I hope, you know, Soto Zen system can be sometimes <laughs> impossibly incomprehensible. But if you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer any questions about the system or the culture of the school. Uh, there's a lot of cultural differences. Japan and US have been so close as a countries. But even today, uh, I feel there's a tremendous cultural gap. One of the main work that I do for the organizations is translation work. And it's not just the language. So, yes, um, I think I'll conclude what time is it? I don't want to use up the whole time. Uh, well, yes, I'd like to honor the schedule. So I'll conclude it here. Um, just before I finish, uh, next year in April, we have the 700th anniversary of Keizan Zenji's passing. And my friend Taiga Ito from International Center has been uh, sharing the news of the tour. Uh, if you are interested, uh, we have a tour um, in April to visit Eheiji and Sojiji, which would be a, actually an addition to probably a tour each group is having. So we'll, my temple also is planning to go to Japan and maybe spend 10 days, a couple of weeks. Um, so we're hoping that we'll have people, uh, participants from South America, North America, Europe, Hawaii, and just to let you know, uh, Taiga Ito, Konjin Godwin, who's the director of international centers, and Zenki Mishimura, the new staff. They're the strikers in soccer field. <laughs> and we, me and the mother, my other colleagues, supposed to be the defense and goalie, except that I don't really stay in the defense. <laughs> so we have a slightly different role. And so if we also question or want to invite this uh, teachers, they, yeah, I think they'd be happy to re get reconnected. Japanese Sotoshu is losing a lot of population members compared to 80s 
70s and 80s, uh, society is facing a very kind of a groom, serious situations. When, when they look at the Westerns and Sanghas, although we ourselves going through a turbulent period of time occasionally, still it inspires us. It gives us a sense of possibility, how we could also move on. One grave reality of monasteries in Japan, many of them, especially the local ones, need Western Zen practitioners come to Japan because they can't maintain the function of the monastery anymore. Um, that's also a grave reality. There's also a great opportunity for them to open up, have a dialogue. So from an umbrella organization's perspective, I see a seriousness of the situation, but also a great opportunity for us to unfold, let the dialogue unfold. Yes. But as, as I said, there's a lot of cultural difference. If there's anything that's bothering you, like why, <laughs> please ask me. I'd be happy to answer these questions. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs>